a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey, congratulations. You have found one of the few islands of sanity left in a sea of, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> a sea of interesting times, I suppose. Thanks for joining us today on the show. Lots of great stuff to talk about this hour. Among the things we're going to cover, uh, we're going to talk about what happened to all the change. Eric Peters has a really solid take on this no change crisis that is now popping up and how it may be a very convenient way of steering us closer to a cashless society. Now, if you value what's left of your privacy, that's something you want to pay attention to. We're also going to talk about the experts. Yes, the ones who know exactly what you and I should be doing in just about every single area of our lives. John Stossel warns us, don't put too much faith in these experts. You look at their track record of late, it's been pretty shabby, to put it mildly. The mask wars are intensifying. The pressure to conform is mounting. Kent McManigal has some very timely encouragement about standing your ground as he pulls back the curtain on the latest round of shutdown theater. And I also uh, I found a a commentary that I posted about a year ago about uh, how the endless cries of racism are getting harder and harder to believe. And here we are a year later. They've only intensified. They're not any easier to believe. But in in the age of terminal wokeness, I An average white guy will do my best to explain why all the cries that racism is everywhere are, uh, well, they're they're about as effective as a lonely uh, car horn or alarm system going off in a lonely parking lot somewhere. Might turn a few heads, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something, you know, crazy going on. Before I go there, though, since this is an election year and since this is on a lot of people's minds, I just wonder... How willing would you be to reveal your voting preference for the upcoming election? Now, for some people, it's no big deal. Okay, the person walking around with a MAGA hat. Yeah, we okay. We got a pretty good idea of how your vote is going to go. Pollsters seem to think that they've got this figured out. And I believe at this point they're still saying, oh, yeah, Joe Biden by at least 10 points. But uh, just to, to illustrate how how slanted or how limited their their take on the world may be. Did you realize, uh, if, if I understand correctly, I believe the, the Democratic National Convention is is going on. Is that true? I mean, look, it's at the time of COVID, so it's not like they can have this big mass gathering that they once had. But uh, I haven't seen much of anything in the news about it. It's very, very quiet. And I have to wonder if that's deliberate, as in, uh, you know, Joe Biden's been keeping a really low profile, too, because... Well, he kind of has a habit of, uh, first of all, forgetting everything he's saying right in the middle of a sentence or leaning in and sniffing somebody who doesn't want to be sniffed. Yeah. Well, James Howard Kunstler has a very solid analysis of what lies beneath the surface of the American body politic. And he, he shares this in the form of a position statement. And I'm going to share this with you, not to tell you you should think exactly like him, but... I think you might be surprised at some of the observations he makes, as well as uh, you might be surprised to find that he's tapped into something that I suspect many of us are feeling. James Howard Kunstler says nothing moves and nothing wants to move or even think about moving under the punishing heat dome. 
For the moment, the sore beset nation stews in a dreadful stillness. The mysterious consensus of the BLM mob has hit the pause button on street tantrums, though plenty of damage has been done to businesses, personal lives, undefended monuments, and the public interest. He says each day is another frightful step in the creep forward, or creep toward, rather, mass default as rents, mortgages, car loans, insurance premiums, electric bills, business debts, and other common obligations go unpaid. It's like one of those eerie interludes on a battlefield when forces stop to gather their wounded and reassess their positions. He says, perhaps you, like me, are skeptical of the news reports about the surge in COVID-19 cases, or more to the point, what it actually means. Cases may be surging, but deaths are way down. Media megaphones such as CNN and the New York Times eagerly retail maximum hysteria to provoke renewed business lockdowns, ensuring further destruction to the old service economy and, more importantly, to disparage Mr. Trump. He says, I wonder if the virus is, in fact, close to burning itself out and the surge in cases signifies that it will soon run out of new victims. How many asymptomatic carriers are out there? We just don't know. But he says, by August, we'll have an idea. Now, James Howard Kunstler says it's certainly in the interest of the woke resistance and its inquisitors in the woke media to keep the volume up on COVID-19 hysteria. It's crucial to their strategy of forcing a vote-by-mail system that would easily invite voter fraud. And it also provides a cover for keeping their mummified lead candidate, Joe Biden, moldering silently in his basement like the ghost of Hubert Humphrey, as well as an excuse to avoid a real convention in Milwaukee, which would force Mr. Biden to step up and speak before a huge live audience. Imagine the mortification. Well, he says, just as I'm unconvinced about the meaning of the COVID-19 surge, I don't buy the polls that show Mr. Biden 10 points up on Mr. Trump. I suspect many actual voters were not pleased by the June reign of terror unleashed by Democratic mayors and governors and did not fail to notice exactly how all that went down. And it's well known now, four years after the last election and its janky polling, that many voters won't reveal their true intentions to pollsters, fearing the vilification they'd invite. He says, I've gotten a lot of letters and comments lately condemning my failure to go all out against Mr. Trump. So he says, I'll state my current position plainly. I didn't vote for him last time, but I would vote for him this time to keep the Democratic Party out of power. There's a lot to not love about Mr. Trump in his persona and manner. There's a great deal more to fear about the prospect of Democratic Party control of government. Their, en their enmity to free speech cannot be doubted after a decade of promoting cancel culture. Their appetite for coercion is at odds with the Bill of Rights. Their bad faith and dishonesty have been on display through all the concocted melodramas of Russiagate and its offshoots. Their economic program is a mashup of all the failed central planning regimes from the bygone 20th century and is wholly inconsistent with the new imperatives to downscale and relocalize the real productive activities of daily life in this country. He says, beyond Mr. Trump's deformities of personal presentation, I'm more in favor with the blunt outlines of his policies. James Howard Kunstler says, I'm for strict control of the nation's borders and, frankly, for reduced immigration. Globalism is clearly winding down, and Mr. Trump's drive to produce more of what we need here in America is in step with that reality. Trump has been careful to avoid new foreign misadventures, though the military establishment and their pals in the war industries have obstructed the president's will to quit the old adventures still being prosecuted in places across the Middle East and West Asia. 
He says, I suspect Mr. Trump might have accomplished more in the nation's interest if he hadn't been hounded, harried and sabotaged by the ceaseless bad faith hostilities of his opponents since November 8th, 2016. James Howard Kunstler says, I'm not confident about Trump's management of the nation's financial quandaries, especially the racking up of epic new debt. But there's plenty of evidence that the Democratic Party would do a lot worse in terms of spending money that doesn't exist and destroying what's left of the country's productive capacity, along with what remains of the middle class. He says, I believe that anybody who has managed to stay sane through the travails of the past four years cannot fail to see the clinically incompetent Joe Biden is an obvious stalking horse for something more sinister. I think we will learn what that is before much longer. Now, I don't know. Some people, you know, are going to are going to take what James Howard Kunstler says here. Well, he says he would likely vote for Trump this time around. And you know what? I have a confession to make. I likely would as well. And I did not vote for him in 2016. And I I will stand by that decision, by the way. I don't uh, I don't believe that uh, I don't believe my vote was wasted in not voting for Trump like many years uh, before I I wrote in whoever I voted for. I can't even remember who I voted for. But uh, as as we have seen throughout his presidency and as we have seen as this election year progresses, I find myself being pushed more and more into his corner. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to start walking around with a MAGA hat and being loud and proud and, you know, telling everybody else, you got to vote this way too. I'm as surprised as anybody to find myself in this position. But as James Howard Kunstler explains here, I think that I am to the point where I would rather vote for Donald Trump with whatever his imperfections are than go for the known danger of a Democrat-controlled government. I mean, it, it couldn't be more obvious what to, what those in power at the highest levels. And I, look, I'm not saying the Republicans are the answer. In fact, I, I guess the, the nicest I can say it is they're they're noticeably less worse than their opponents. They're bad. No doubt about it. But I never thought I would see the day when I would find myself pushed into the corner where I would say, yeah, I think it's very likely that I will be voting for Trump this coming November. I don't know if you found yourself in a similar quandary. I know a lot of people are very, you know, unhesitatingly supportive of him. But uh, that's been a difficult journey for me. So now that I've shared that with you, I guess you can let the shaming begin. (laughs) We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thank you so much for being part of my audience today. Do me this small favor, and if you find if you find any of the articles that I share or any of the thoughts that I share to be of value, whether it's providing encouragement or just a little bit of clarity on the passing scene, please share this with a friend. Let them know that they can uh, they can subscribe to the podcast. Um, you know, I, I love the the live broadcast. That's that's great. But it's very clear to me that podcasting is the future and that uh, the message can keep on going out there long after the host has tired and gone to bed, (laughs) if that makes sense. Rather than a radio signal still continuing its way out into space, you know, the, the podcast 
is forever. Well, it's for as long as, you know, the Internet is still up and running. By the way, you can go to the com. And you will find a convenient button right there on the landing page where you can subscribe to my podcast. Please do it. Let your friends know, too. I'll thank you in advance. Let's talk about what's happening to the change. Where is all the change? Why, why are we being warned that we got to round up or we got to use a card or use exact change when we go to the store? It's puzzling to a lot of us, but Eric Peters has a great take on what is happening. And and it's not just about, well, it's a temporary shortage of change from the U.S. Mint or from, you know, the Federal Reserve. His article is called No Change on the Way to No Cash. And I think he has zeroed in on what the real concern should be. He says, when people are terrified, it's hard for them to think, which probably explains why they seem unable to now. Why, or he says, can it possibly be a coincidence that the number of cases endlessly reported is increasing and the amount of change available at stores is all of a sudden decreasing? Could the two be connected somehow? Eric Peters asks, is it credible that all of a sudden and right now there's no change in the till just by chance when such shortages have never happened before or He asks, do you suppose it's possible this purported shortage of coins is contrived to push people toward not using cash? It's a thought you'd think more people would have, one that might raise some questions in their mind. But then they don't seem to think very much about the cases either. Instead, they are scared, terrified, and not surprisingly, passive. Terror, psychologists will tell you, induces torpor. It frazzles the cognitive apparatus. There's a reason why rabbits freeze when confronted with a predator. Americans, lots of them, have become lagomorphic. They freeze, paralyzed by the fear instilled by the predator. They're shocked into submission. The Soviets styled their frontline troops shock troops for a reason. It's not a coincidence that the applicators of state terrorism under the great decider used the term shock and awe as a paralytic agent. They could, of course, act... The peaceful protesters, in quotes, showed it's possible, but the so-called peaceful protesters are not lagomorphic, perhaps the last Americans to have not descended to rabbithood. Their motives and morals are not the point here. The point is they didn't freeze. If America is to be saved, says Eric Peters, it will take Americans with good motives and morals unfreezing which if they did so would avoid an actual fight and the possibility of general destruction and mindless mayhem that could easily exceed that of a previous example of what happens when people freeze when confronted by predators. It only took a handful of Lenin's Bolshevik thugs to gain control of St. Petersburg in Russia because most of the city's residents froze in terror. They let the thugs take over. They served as the silent ballast of the communist revolution. And many didn't live to regret it. In fact, he has a quote here from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose words are always worth considering. Solzhenitsyn said, you must understand, the leading Bolsheviks who took over Russia were not Russians. They hated Russians. They hated Christians. Driven by ethnic hatred, they tortured and slaughtered millions of Russians without a shred of human remorse. It cannot be overstated. Bolshevism committed the greatest human slaughter of all time. The fact that the world is ignorant and uncaring about this enormous crime is proof that the global media is in the hands of the perpetrators. Now, Eric Peters says today's Bolshevists are also a handful. 
The media, as it is styled, is in fact the property of a very few large corporations, and those corporations are controlled by, at most, a few dozen people who want you to hear about the cases, but never the 99-plus percent recovery from them, or the 80-plus percent no symptoms from them, every day, as many times per day as possible. Telagomorphize you into statuary so as to, acc- to uh, acclimate you to a cashless society in which you will no longer have the capability to protest, peacefully or otherwise. How will you eat when they can take away your food and your work and everything else by making it impossible for you to pay except using their digital payment system, contingent on your being a very good little lagomorph? It ought to get people to think. Why is the media, the word implies a great panoply of news outlets and thousands of reporters and commentators, uniform in its reporting and commentary? Why does almost no one, why does one almost never hear of a reporter or commentator within the media putting the cases into context in the manner of cases of dandruff, say, or asking why all of a sudden people are being pressured not to use cash? Eric Peters says it's because, like Lenin's Bolshevist shock troops, the media is in fact a small cohort in terms of who controls it. But because it controls practically all mainstream reporting and commentary, it can fabricate the perception of saturation consent, which leads to actual consent, or rather, shell-shocked submission. A thinking person, as opposed to a fear-frozen lagomorph, might wonder why the sudden re-urgency of face diapering when there's palpably less, if any, reason to diaper. Yes, the cases may be up, but the death count isn't just down, it's practically disappeared. In fact, italicized to emphasize that it is a fact. The ratio of cases to deaths is so lopsided as to make the fear absurd. To a thinking brain. But a brain frozen is another thing. And now there's no change. The rabbits freeze again. There's a story about another lagomorph na- named Zinoviev. He was one of Lenin's Bolshevist shock troops who specialized in freezing people via terror. When it wheeled around on him under Stalin, he froze too. He could not believe as he descended the steps of the Lubyanka to where his blood would soon flow into the river of blood unleashed by himself that it was now his turn to bleed. He didn't round on his executioners and at least try to gouge an eye or kick a shin or even stand on his feet like a man. Instead, he froze and then begged. It was an embarrassing end, one of his his executioners told stories of and laughed at. What stories will one day be told about this generation of frozen, lagomorphic Americans? Again, this is from Eric Peters, epautos.com. I'll have a link in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhideshow.com or you can access at lovingliberty.net. Well worth reading and sharing. And if you're not dropping by Eric's website on a regular basis, you're missing a great opportunity to be better informed. In fact, I just want to confess, Eric's writing is remarkable. His vocabulary enriches uh, my understanding of, of just about every subject to which he, uh, he offers an opinion. But the commenters who often comment on his articles are, I mean, he's, let me just put it this way. The guy has a very, uh, very well-educated uh, and well-thought-out following. There's a lot of sharp people there, and, and you'll see differing points of view. Not everybody, it's not an echo chamber where everybody marches in lockstep. Some people push back. Some people, you know, have their own take on things. But as far as intelligent comments 
you know, minus that that cancerous, nasty, uh, just spewing of venom that you'll find in so many other comment sections, you could actually learn a thing or two. So this is my shameless plug for my friend Eric Peters and his remarkable website, epautos.com. Make sure it's a part of your, uh, your daily routine. While I'm on the subject, I just want to mention, too, I am compiling, and it's still a work in progress, but I have compiled a list of some of the most valuable resources that I use on a daily basis to get a sense of what is going on in the world. I'm not guaranteeing that every word you read from these websites will be truth, but I've listed it on this uh, resources page on thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for resources for truth seekers. And be prepared to spend some time, because I've put a bunch of them up there for you. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Let's dive right into an article by John Stossel. Don't put too much faith in the experts. Look around you right now and and see of all the different discussions and arguments and back and forth that you're seeing on social media. How often do you see appeal to experts? How often do you see the media referring? Well, this expert says this and this expert says that. And the implication, of course, is always if an expert says it, then the questioning is over. Now, I played for you a clip here a few weeks ago uh, from NPR about an expert who was complaining about how people have stopped believing in experts. In fact, I'm going I'm to put it another way. Stupid people have stopped believing in experts and believe that they can actually sort things out for themselves. The noive of these people. At least that's how it came off. This expert was, was quite incensed that, that people would not lean on his understanding and his alone when he told them to do something. Yeah, it's pretty arrogant, but uh, he's not the first person to have been educated beyond his intellect. John Stossel has a very solid reminder for us that as, as much as we're being told we must trust the experts, we must defer to what the experts are saying, the experts get it wrong. And they get it wrong in ways that, that matter. So let's not give them too much credence here. The article says between two and three million Americans will die. That was the prediction from experts at London's Imperial College when COVID-19 began. Stossel says they did also say if there was social distancing of the whole population, the death toll could be cut in half. But 1.1 to 1.46 million Americans would still die by this summer. Now, our actual death toll has been about one tenth of that. Nevertheless, Imperial College's model was extremely influential. Politicians issued stay-at-home orders. They said we must trust the experts, follow the science, listen to the experts, do what they tell you, said Joe Biden, laughing at what he considered an obvious truth. But Stossel says there is no such thing as the science, replies science reporter Matt Ridley in Stossel's new video about expert predictions. Science consists of people disagreeing with each other. And by the way, Matt Ridley says the lockdowns were quite dangerously wrong because Imperial's model predicted that COVID-19 would overwhelm hospitals. Patients were moved to nursing homes and the coronavirus then spread in nursing homes. Ordering almost every worker to stay home led to an economic collapse that may have killed people, too. 
Ridley says the main interventions that helped prevent people dying were stopping large gatherings, people washing their hands and wearing face masks, general social distancing, not forcing people to stay home. Even New York Governor Andrew Cuomo now admits we all failed at that business. All the early national experts. Here's my projection model. They were all wrong. Of course, he's not really taking uh, responsibility for his decision to insist that nursing homes admit COVID positive patients. But that's a small matter. What was it? 5,000 people died because of that order alone? All right, I digress. Stossel says if Cuomo and other politicians had just done a little research, then they would have known that Imperial College researchers repeatedly predict great disasters that don't happen. Their model predicted 65,000 deaths from swine flu, 136,000 from mad cow disease, and 200 million from bird flu. The real numbers were in the hundreds. After such predictions were repeatedly wrong, why did politicians boss us around based on those same experts' models? Ridley says, if you say something really pessimistic, pessimistic about how many people are going to die... The media want to believe you. The politicians daren't not believe you. And Stossel says this bias towards pessimism applies to the fear of climate change, too. 32 years ago, climate experts said rising seas would completely cover the islands of the the Maldives in the next 30 years. But now, 32 years later, the islands are not only still there, they're doing better than ever. They're even building new airports. Ridley says climate change is real but it's not happening nearly as fast as models predicted. Models repeatedly over-predict disaster because, as Ridley says, that's a very good way of attracting attention to your science and getting rewarded for it. Okay, that makes, that makes sense, actually. One more example. Stossel says, for years, experts predicted an oil shortage. President Jimmy Carter warned, the oil and natural gas we rely on for 75% of our energy are simply running out. And by the way, all the experts agreed. But as the demand for oil grew, oil prices rose. That inspired entrepreneurs to invent new ways of getting more oil and gas out of the same rocks. They succeeded so well that America now has so much oil and gas that we sell some to other countries. Ridley's new book, How Innovation Works, shows how innovators prove experts wrong all the time. He points out that the founder of Digital Equipment Corporation once said, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. <laughs> One of those things that didn't age particularly well. Microsoft CEO confidently said, there is no chance the iPhone is going to get significant market share. New York Times columnist Paul Krugman wrote that because most people have nothing to say to each other, the Internet's impact on the economy will be no greater than the fax machines. OK, these are really solid examples. Stossel says, of course, not all experts are wrong. Useful experts do exist. He says, I want a trained civil engineer to design any bridge I cross. But Ridley points out, there is no such thing as expertise on the future. It's dangerous to rely too much on models which lead politicians to lock down society and destroy people's livelihood. Danger lies both ways. I'll have this article linked in the show notes. I would encourage you to take a, take a gander at it. See what you think. Share it with friends if, if you feel like that's a good use of time. 
I'm going to shift gears now, and uh, like like a lot of people, I'm sure um, I'm having far more conversations about the mask issue, the mask wars, if you will, and the pressure to conform is really starting to mount. It's not enough for people to simply show by example, look, I'm going to wear this mask and I'm going to you know, show people that I'm willing to do what I consider the right thing by masking up, not just for my sake, but for your sake as well. But I'm hearing more and more stories about people being accosted, shouted down, shamed, you know, in some cases physically confronted. And I have to wonder, where does this end? Are we, should we just bring back the stocks? Remember, you lock people in the stocks and everybody throws rotten tomatoes at them? Do we start burning people at the stake? I mean, the Salem Witch Trials participants are now looking at us from the great beyond it, shaking their heads going, guys, lighten up. Kent McManigle, who is always a voice of reason in such matters, has a thoughtful comment or a commentary rather called mask fine theft by government. Because the uh, the implication here is that government has to step in and make this happen by force. By the way, I love that my friend Connor Boyack has pointed out the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, says, I have the authority to make a mandate. And Connor points out, look, just because you say you have authority doesn't make it so. And he has challenged anybody. Show me where in the Utah Constitution the governor has this authority. So far, crickets. Nobody can show him. Kent McManigal says when a politician makes a mistake and makes a problem worse or creates a problem out of thin air, they rarely change course. Instead, they double down. It's hard for them to admit they did the wrong thing. And it's so easy to claim it was the right thing, but it didn't go far enough. Welcome to Political Shutdown Theater Part 2. The first shutdown was a terrible idea. And Kent McManigal says, I'd be willing to forgive those responsible since it was done in ignorance. No one knew how dangerous the virus might be. And sketchy reports from other countries scared some people into overreacting. However, now we know to shut the economy down again, to shut down society isn't ignorant. It is an intentional act of sabotage. And he says those responsible should be held accountable personally, not by shifting the burdening onto their tax victims. Kent says, as one reader pointed out to him, all businesses are essential to their customers. And he says, I would add that they are also essential to the owners, their employees, and the general economic health of society. He correctly pointed out that this is people control, not virus control. Kent McManigal says, I'm not automatically against shutting some things down. I would favor letting all government agencies and facilities close until all danger from everything has passed. This is as far as government authority goes, though. They have no legitimate authority over anything in the private sector. They only pretend they do. To allow politicians to make any decision for you, backed by the violence of government, is irresponsible. It's foolish to allow politics to infest society. This foolishness is compounded if politicians are allowed to impose a fine for the non-crime of not wearing a mask. A fine is simply another way for government to steal money for itself. I'm never in favor of fines. A fine is used to punish people while coercing them into doing what the state wants, regardless of whether the state is correct. Kent says, I'm in favor of choice, letting people make their own decisions and mistakes about the things that affect them. If you don't want to take the risk of opening your business or leaving your home, no one should force you to do so. If you feel safer wearing a mask, I encourage you to wear one. Do whatever you can to make yourself feel better without forcing your choices on anyone else. No one should dictate your choices to you nor should your choices be imposed on others.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. This is a gathering place for people who've accepted the truth that they are not sheep. And so anything that I can do in the effort of furthering independent thought and encouraging you to stand in your life and stand your ground, at least to maintain your individuality and not surrender to the, to the collective, that is why I'm here. That's why I love what I do. It's why I sit behind this microphone day in and day out, yammering on, hopefully with some purpose. So a final thought here, I mentioned in the last segment about Kent McManigle and, and, and talking about this, this ma- the mask wars, how they're intensifying, you know, they're, they want to impose fines. And here's the sad thing about it. It's not just the politicians who are solely behind this. It's shocking to me how many people with what they consider righteous indignation are stepping up and saying, it is beyond time. It is time for the police to get involved. It is time to jail these nonconformists. It is time to find them. It is time to punish them. I mean, the, the, the little dictator that, that lives inside each one of our skulls is being indulged in ways that are, are just, frankly, scary. And for those who sincerely do not want to mask up, I know it's, it's hard to do when someone's questioning your motives and saying, well, you're just doing this because you're selfish or you're just contrarian or you're, you're just antisocial or whatever they're, they're saying. The bottom line is you're out of step and therefore you must be wrong and you need to step into line, brother or sister, as the case may be. So I've been mulling this over and I'm not I I don't have a a concise way of putting this, but I want to throw this out there. and, And if someone can think of a better way to say this, if you can refine this and help drive this message home, I wonder if there is a way that those of us who question the mask narrative. Not because we are fully dead set that it does nothing to stop the transmission of virus. I do think there are some very legitimate questions. The Ben Swan video that I shared on yesterday's show is a very good example of how there's there's ample science and ample research that exists to at least cast doubts on whether it's the panacea that we're told that it is. But beyond that, it's the idea, as Ken McManigal points out, that none of us has the right to force other people to do something just because we think it's right. To treat people like lepers because we think that uh, they're not getting with the program. And I know there, there are a certain segment of those who wear the mask who I think do so out of what, are, are what they consider good motivation. I'm doing this to show that I care about you, that I care about the people around me. How can we frame the message of why I don't wear the mask in that I do what I'm doing because I care about you? And I'm not reducing this to simply the health aspect, which, again, is is still in question. But rather, I'm willing to suffer being misunderstood, misrepresented, shamed, accosted, maybe even physically assaulted because I am standing for what remains of our freedoms. And I see that this mandate to make everyone wear a mask as part of a test to see how far will the American people submit? How far will we go simply because someone in a presumed position of authority said you have to do this? Someone who may not even have legitimate authority to tell us you have to do this. Look, it's not the first time in history that stuff like this has happened. And the people who stand up for what is right against 
the protestations of the crowd, can expect to be ridiculed and maligned. That is the price you pay for standing for something. I'm just wondering if there's a way that we could do it gently and with enough love to show people that I'm doing this because I care about your future and my future and the future of our children and our grandchildren and the amount of freedom that they will enjoy moving forward from this point. Okay, it's still a work in progress. If you have some thoughts on how that could happen, by all means, get a hold of me. By the way, you can leave voice messages on my podcast. Go to go to the podcast. Again, the links are at thebrianhideshow.com. Subscribe, and you'll find that as you listen to each episode, you can leave a voice comment. I would love to hear from you. All right, I'm going to swerve into one last thing here. I posted this about a year ago. Um, this was an article that I wrote for Southern Utah Now. Why we can't trust the endless cries of racism. And here we are a year later, and I'm thinking, all right, I I think this one actually has aged rather well. I point out how on the one hand, I should be grateful so many members of the press appear to be looking out for my best interest by loudly warning me about the many dangers and evils that abound. But on the other hand, their willingness to label as racist anyone who refuses to agree with them It's giving me serious trust issues. If there was ever a modern parallel to the story of the little boy who cried wolf, this would be it. You don't have to agree with President Trump's tweets or his public fits of, you know, rhetorical incontinence to see that to the claims of racism, which, by the way, a year ago they were saying the president's racist tweets. Those claims are as hollow as a ping pong ball. Accusations of of racism have become kind of a reflexive cuss word for frustrated individuals trying to demonize ideological opponents, but who don't want to have to bother with rational, specific evidence of wrongdoing. Their accusation alone is supposed to carry the same weight as a conviction. This is the perfect example of the unspecified or bogus predicate where the audience is left to their own emotional associations to fill in the blanks of what the accused may or may not have done. See, we don't have any details, but we're all supposed to recognize that hate or racism are bad things. Therefore, somebody accused of those things must have done something horrible. But this is a really bad idea if you are someone who is intent on thinking clearly and independently in assessing the world around you. Now, I'm not suggesting that people aren't entitled to their opinions, but the job of the press is to report facts to us and allow us to apply the labels if we so choose. NPR's vice president of newsroom training and diversity, Keith Woods, wrote, It's already nearly impossible to separate actual journalism from the argumentative noise on the cable networks that dominate so much of public perception. There are already too many journalists dancing day and night on that line that once separated fact and judgment. And if you remember, last year, three times last year alone, members of the press decisively crossed that line in matters that turned out to be hoaxes. Remember the Covington High School kids at the Lincoln Memorial, the Jussie Smollett case, the Erica Thompson incident in Georgia, all of which were reported as racially charged incidents. Outrage and denouncements flowed freely toward the accused with nonstop press coverage. And every single one of these incidents later had to be walked back in light of further evidence showing them to be as fake as a politician's smile. But, of course, the damage had already been done, not only to the reputations of those who were accused, but also to the credibility of the opportunistic members of the press looking for a cheap way to virtue signal at the expense of their ideological rivals. Was this really necessary? I mean, look, the the lust to stamp out perceived discrimination is distracting us from the fact that the race card is being wildly overplayed. 
Americans, after all, did elect a black man as president not once, but twice. More opportunity is available today for everyone who is willing to stop obsessing over race and to simply get to work bettering themselves. In fact, authentic racism is rare enough that political opportunists have to gin up contrived outrage in order to try to attract followers. And given that we're headed into an election cycle that's coming to be defined as the racists versus the socialists, (laughs) does that seem like it's going to calm things down in any way? Why do we have to pretend that everything that displeases us is somehow based in racism? Jason L. Riley in the Wall Street Journal wrote, Accusations of white racism are all the rage in Washington these days. If you oppose school busing, you're a racist. If you want immigration laws enforced, you're a racist. If you're against slavery reparations or support adding a citizenship question to the census or criticize minority members of Congress, you're a racist. And my take is those who keep falsely crying racism have come to the point of where they're robbing the word of any meaning whatsoever. In fact, their cries of wolf have reached the point of diminishing returns. Like an errant car alarm blaring in a lonely parking lot, a few heads may turn, but no one can take seriously the labels that they're broadcasting. And I would remind you, too, that proponents of identity politics thrive on the kind of collectivist conflict that keeps us pitted against one another in some endless quest for power over each other. Just don't forget, it's a practice that's embraced by the conservative right as well as the progressive left. So this is this is not just the woke. It can happen. You know, identity politics can happen on all sides of the political spectrum. But the bottom line is anytime you see a crowd being whipped up into chanting, And by the way, I would include this at sporting events if we still had them. (laughs) You can be certain when they're chanting, tribalism is at play. And the common thread that links both sides of this identity-based antagonism comes down to the desire to use political power to force the other side into submission. That's why we have to be so cautious about what kinds of things we allow to become politicized. In other words, what kind of things we ask government to step in and solve for us. Because once it becomes a solution imposed by government, guaranteed it's going to be politicized. It's going to become a power struggle. We have to be problem solvers in as many areas of our life as possible because government tends to only complicate matters. And by the way, it's not just being cautious about what we allow government to, put, to touch or to politicize, but we also need to keep a healthy sense of skepticism about how things are reported to us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.